Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Um, and uh, welcome to guests, any strangers amongst us. Um, you're, you're very welcome here today. We've been very muted, I, I feel, in our in our singing and response, and it's not surprising. I don't know whether you've found the words Happy New Year. I've used them, but something sticking in my throat, I think, when I, when I say that to other people because of, of what has happened. That little piece um, <clears throat> that I, I wrote um, a day or two after the uh, destructive events in the eastern Indian Ocean it was really almost to order my own thinking and only when I was kind of halfway through did I think it might have be of any interest to anyone else they're on a little table just on your left as you go out um, at the back if you like them but I was kind of not very sure about its its worth in publication so I said to Kim well let's only print a hundred if people want more uh, we can we can get them but maybe husbands and wives if you you don't both need to take them that's what I'm I'm saying but um, what else would you wish each other, if not a happy new year? Think of, I mean, there are some good things you could wish. Choose another word in your head. Generous new year. I wish you a generous new year. Or a sure-footed new year. Or a, a well-guided new year. A holy new year. That's a bit heavy, isn't it? You could choose some other ad- adjective. In one sense, the new year is just an artificial line drawn in time, isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> there isn't anything theological about new years. It's just a, a line that's drawn and uh, you have one number one side and one number the other side. But as Dave was saying at the beginning, it, it is an opportunity for us to take stock a little bit. I think many of us probably do that. Middle of the year, we have a little bit of a break. We can think about where we've been coming from, where we're going to take stock uh, and make some choices. And it's very much with that in mind that we have planned this week of prayer starting tomorrow and running all the way through till Saturday. Um, <clears throat> do please join us for as many of the occasions um, as you can, Minimum, maybe of one, uh, that we can pray for our nation, our world, for, for our church, for the work that's going on through the church, for those that have gone out from the church into various situations of challenge and opportunity. Um, let's make, can I wish you a prayerful new year? Let, let me put it like that. Um, <clears throat> as we, we absorb what's, what's going on and how we want to, to respond and be part of, of the work of, and the responsibilities of God's people um, at this time. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture. It's actually the beginning of a series that we're going to run during the course of this um, coming quarter, this term, if you like. But what I want to start with this morning is, is a passage right at the end of John's Gospel and lead into this morning and the series um, by looking first at some verses from John chapter 20. So John 20, verses 30 and 31, they will come up and I'll read them to you. 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is looking back over what he has written, these previous 20 chapters, and explaining how his little book, a unique book, how it was organized. And John is saying, look, Jesus did many, many miracles, miraculous things, dozens of them. And I know them. And I've reflected on them, and I've thought about them, and uh, I haven't bothered to write them all down. But as I have thought about all that Jesus did over those three public years, I have deliberately selected eight. And I've built my gospel around these eight signs. And the reason why I want you to give careful attention to these eight only, well, there are two reasons. One is they will help you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. They are evidence, carefully chosen from the mass of what he did to help you know and understand that Jesus is the Son of God, whatever happens. And secondly, as you believe this truly and clearly and understand, you will find spiritual life growing up inside you. Now, says John, these eight events are signs, not merely miracles. They're not just repetitions of the simple idea that Jesus had great power at the physical level. They are signs, signs of his power at a spiritual level and his ability to meet our needs. There's an illustration of this difference later on in the gospel, and we'll come to it in a few weeks' time. Uh, Jesus, you remember the famous occasion where he had fed with just a few loaves and fishes. He had fed 5,000 people. And the next day, the thousands and all the other people that they had been able to talk to turned up again for another dole out of free food. And Jesus told them off. He said, look, you're just coming for free food the handout. But you aren't beginning remotely to understand what that provision of that need was intended to signify. You just after free food, away with you. I'm not going to do it again and again and again. You need to think and understand what these things signify. These eight events are, we may call them, enacted parables. Diagnosing human need at a level deeper than just the physical, though the physical matters and Jesus meets physical need. But we have other needs. Diagnosing those other needs and revealing Christ as the one uh, to meet those needs. The first um, of these events is in John chapter 2, and it comes in the first 11 verses. It's very simple and straightforward. It's a wedding that took place one day or over the course perhaps of a week at Cana in Galilee. And we ought to say at the beginning that it is a story of normal life. Even after all that <clears throat> the world ha has been living through um, this last week, the great catastrophes, normal things will return. And this is a story of, of normal life and a happy wedding. Let's read John chapter 2 and the 11 verses set for us. On the third day, 
A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, run out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill those jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Bit of background. In the first century, it was always the bridegroom's responsibility to provide um, the food and drink at a wedding, unlike in our culture, where at least traditionally, uh, it has tended to fall on, on the father of the bride's head. The celebrations in a first century wedding could last as long as six or seven days. So it wasn't cheap. And there are even first century records of lawsuits resulting um, from uh, aggrieved relatives who weren't happy or satisfied with the level of provision that had been brought at, at the wedding. I have a family wedding coming up in the in the spring and to be quite honest, that concept is a nightmare to me. Absolute nightmare. Um, imagine if I had to worry about grumpy Welsh relatives from Snowdonia saying, I'll see you in court about this meal, boy. You call this a wedding reception? I, I wouldn't give this to my corgi. So I get nightmares about this kind of thing, sort of, you know, in the days before. Anyway, here is this young man. It's his responsibility. He is on show, all the relatives have arrived, and he's blown it, basically. This is a very bad start to, to his married life. This is a shame culture, isn't it? Where maintaining face matters. And uh, he's made a complete mess of it, and, and he's wrecked his special day, her special day, and he has nowhere to hide. They've run out of wine. Wine was used at weddings... Uh, and other kinds of celebration, to express the joy of the occasion. <clears throat> you have wine uh, because of the specialness, uh, to express the happiness and the satisfaction. It was then and it is now. Wine, anywhere in the Bible, is, is used to convey a picture of joy. It's, it's not for drinking alone in the Bible. But wine runs out in life, doesn't it? You think it'll last, and it doesn't. Joy can easily drain out of relationships. You could start a, a career, get a job, 
And what once were your ambitions go sour on you. You can start a business or a venture and, and then watch it fall to pieces. It used to be said that every great political career ends in tears and grief. You remember Mrs. Thatcher, how many years ago? Walking out of Downing Street, you know, eyes full of tears, her political career had, had ended like that. And your New Year's resolution, your January dreams can end in, in the February blues. And we know that. Sitting quietly amongst the guests, totally unrecognized, was the one who had thought up the idea of marriage in the first place. There at Cana in Galilee, sitting quietly in the back row, is the one who had himself originally come and looked for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when their marriage began to get into trouble. The one who is the creator, who, who actually designed in his great mind the way in which wine is normally made from water and dangle it in grapes for a few months and then tread it down with Frenchman's feet and, and eventually leave it in the bottle for a while and it sort of becomes something drinkable. So amidst all the music and the food and the dancing and the family gossip and the atmosphere of the wedding, sitting there quietly in the back, watching it all go on, is Jesus, the one behind the whole thing. With weddings coming up in a family, I, I, I notice certain things happening um, to me. One is I start to keep an eye open for sort of snippets, ideas, um, bits and pieces, quotes that might perhaps come in handy in a speech. I came across this the other day. The average girl would rather have beauty than brains because she knows the average man can see much better than he can think. Patsy Kensett apparently said, I, I can't, one of these Hello OK magazines, I can't believe I've had three marriages. Two is one thing, but three is like someone who goes on the Jerry Springer show. I'd rather like this one. Some women can't take a joke. Others prefer one to no husband at all. The day he moved out was terrible. That evening she went through hell. His absence wasn't a problem, but the corkscrew had gone as well. And the tone of all these is slightly mocking and cynical. There are books of them. You, you can wander into some bookshop with your Christmas book tokens and you can find books of this kind of of stuff, and it's ironic, it's deflated, it's, it's mocking, it's downbeat, it's cynical. That is the constant tone with which marriage is spoken of in these kind of uh, little books. But God never intended life to be lived in that sort of atmosphere, empty, sad, minor, key, defeated. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might live it to the full. But for this wedding, in John chapter 2, to be turned around, for the joy to be restored, to be assured, not just in the wedding, but in the marriage, 
Everybody here is going to need to come into a new relationship with Jesus. And when they let him take over, things begin to turn a corner. And until they do, everything remains spoiled and ruined in in some ways. The the outline of this is so simple uh, and of its implications for us. Give Christ the burden. In other words, let him take charge. Expect his blessing too. And start to believe, to trust and follow. That's number three. When Mary approaches Jesus, when they realize the crisis that has fallen on them, she approaches Jesus about the problem, and he seems to give her a very strange reply, doesn't he? Woman, what, what has this got to do with me? What do you think of that? I mean, if I had spoken to my mother like that, I mean, this was in the days when, when spanking was, was not only allowed, it was actively encouraged in my family. I would never have addressed my mother as woman. My mother could could bring our meal table to a stop just by clearing her throat when I was growing up. There was a certain twitch of the eyebrow, you know, which I was good for a week. Woman, what has this got to do with me? Actually, in the Aramaic, um, it it is more respectful. We don't have anything in English quite the same. I mean, madam, no. Lady, honourable lady, no, it doesn't. We don't have anything that works kind of like that. So... I think it sounds worse, probably, in our English than it would actually have done at the time. But every time you see Mary in the Gospels after the Christmas events, every single time you can follow this, Jesus is distancing himself from her. Because Mary needed a saviour as much as anyone else. She needed her own son to be her saviour. And Jesus constantly does that. She has no speciality status, although she was a remarkable woman. What do you think Jesus meant by saying, my time has not yet come? My time for being responsible for the wedding arrangements. One day, one day when Jesus is the bridegroom, a day pictured at the end of the Bible, when his bride has been made up of people from every culture and every nation who have come to know him and trust him, that day there'll be no running out of of wine. That day he will take responsibility and be in charge. But at this stage, he's not the bridegroom. So he says, look, my time hasn't yet come. But Mary says to the servants, whatever he says, just do it. Just, just do it. And she's absolutely right. She's got it. We must take our instructions this new year in our marriages, in our work, in our homes, in the way our lives are ordered. Take our, our instructions from the Lord Jesus. Let him take over. He turns water into wine. The servants also need to grasp this. I imagine them as a sort of small local catering firm that did weddings from time to time. I don't know whether that's true, but that helps me imagine. And they wouldn't have been used to taking orders from a guest, Uh, especially when the instructions that he gave sounded so strange. Draw water from a well, fill up those great big 
pots, those many-gallon stone earthenware jars, right? Now serve the water, would you? Not blinking likely. Water? You must be joking. This could be the end of our career as, as a catering firm. You know, you can't serve water in the middle of a wedding. Have you ever tried it? Give them some good wine, and then when they're half cut, give them a glass of water. Most people, even when they've drunk too much, can tell the difference between water and... Oh, well. But Mary had said, whatever he says, do it. And they took the risk of obeying him. Mm. And as they drew off water from these <clears throat> great big jars, it became wine as they trusted him and obeyed him. And they poured out the first goblet to the master of the ceremonies. And he looked at them. I never tasted anything like this before. And they just smiled sweetly. <laughs> Picking up the credit now as the small local catering firm, hoping for a few more orders. And the master of the ceremonies then spoke to the bridegroom and said, you know, normally people serve their best wine first. And then when their palate has become a little dulled, then they bring out the cheap stuff. You know, you go to a quality off-license, and then you go to Asda's, or whatever. And he said, no, you've, you've done it the other way around. You've kept the best until now. And the bridegroom didn't really understand how that had happened, but he didn't mind glowing a little bit. He was staring into the black hole of a social disaster, and now suddenly he finds himself being congratulated on his style and, and his generosity. And Jesus has been the quiet key to the whole transformation. We need to trust him. Here we are at the beginning of, of the new year. And marriages are a new beginning in many ways. There are new commitments that you've made. There are new relationships now to be undertaken and sustained. And it's the start of a whole new phase of life. And this gospel, John's gospel, starts with a wedding. And in one of John's other books, Revelation, uh, you get the whole picture at the end of Revelation um, of the start of eternity being pictured as being like a wedding. And the key is to put everything in the hands of Christ. Lord, turn the water that I am able to draw into something that tastes like your wine. Lord, Touch me in, in my, my home, my marriage, my relationships, my responsibilities. Because left to myself, I'm not going to be able to, to do anything other than produce disappointment and ruin and, and dissatisfaction. The wine runs out. It does at work, at home, and relationships, and so on. And we need to ask him to turn water into wine in our experience, in our generosity in our prayer, in any one of those ways that you thought of greeting others but avoiding the word happy. The last verse of our passage <clears throat> this morning um, says this. This is the first of the miraculous signs that Jesus performed, and he thus revealed his glory. And as he did so, his disciples put their faith in him. Jesus revealed his kindness, his power, his compassion, 
uh, his presence. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will show us Jesus revealing his glory in one brilliant, stunning occasion. It's the transfiguration. One day he took three to the top of the mountain and, and says the Gospels, he was transfigured before them. John doesn't do it that way. Instead of there being a transfiguration story in John, what you get instead is one after another of these little glimpses of his glory, where it, it's as if the curtain was just pulled a little bit and then dropped. And you'll, you'll see it in, in chapter 2 here, you'll see it in chapter 4, chapter 5, twice in chapter 6, again in chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 21. And that's what we're going to look at during the course of this term, these glimpses of his glory. Because what enables people to, to follow him is exactly that. In describing the story of Abraham, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when he is about to be martyred, said, the God of glory appeared. And then the story of Abraham unfolds as he follows what he has seen of the glory and the compassion, the power of God himself. You'll find it all the way through the story of the book of Exodus, as Israel makes their way through the wilderness. One occasion after another, the glory of God appears, and suddenly they lock on again and they follow. And you've got that now beginning to happen, um, here in, in John's Gospel. It says, he revealed something of his glory. He lifted the curtain and the disciples trusted him and believed in him and followed him. And brother and sister believers, that is what we need to seek during the course of the coming year, to see something of the character and the wonder and the glory, the amazingness, the faithfulness, the love of the Lord Jesus himself because that will actually as John promised, enable us to believe that he is the Son of God and enable us to have that spiritual life bubbling up which deals with the things that happen and overcomes the crisis as, as we meet them. Our arrangements and plans don't work out. We need him. The very first miracle that you see Moses performing back in the book of Exodus was to turn water into what? Blood. It was a curse. It spread death. The first miracle that John shows Jesus performing is to turn water into something that brings joy, brings satisfaction, brings happiness. And the beginning of the gospel had said, Moses came as the great lawgiver. Jesus Christ has come overflowing with grace and truth to bring us life. Give him your burdens. Ask him to touch what to you is natural and in the end disappointing, to turn water into wine. And as we commit ourselves to doing what he says during this coming year, we may expect his blessing. Know that the joy of his power at work, and the anonymous saviour sitting quietly amongst the guests has actually become our own Lord and Master as we follow him. Let him make the difference in the year ahead to your prayers and your direction and your relationships. Let's pray.
God, our Father, we thank you for your, your word, its richness, its depth. Help us not just to see miracles, but to see signs, to know what they signify, to follow Christ as we should, to trust him wholly, and to know that supernatural dimension in our own lives from time to time as you will. For Christ's sake. Amen. We're going to end, um, musicians, by singing that uh, well-known, I shouldn't have said just the musicians, they're not going to play. We're, we're all going to stand and sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. So when they lead us in, let's stand and sing this and then our service will be ended. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.